2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm one of your hosts. I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of the fascinating new book that's just come out, titled The Royal Wardrobe, Peek into the Wardrobes of History's Most Fashionable Royals, by Rosie Hart. Um, This book, as the title suggests peeks into the british english monarchies depending on which time period we're looking at in the book to examine the clothing that they wore why they wore it um, and what it means this is a really interesting book that covers a lot of different monarchs a lot of different time periods and probably has some things that listeners from a lot of different historical backgrounds are going to find interesting so rosie thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me. Before we dive into all things monarchical clothing, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this?
3: Yes. So I am a fashion and social historian, so I'm very, very interested in looking at how we have interacted with clothing throughout history, how we've used it to form identities and to express certain parts of ourselves and using uh, fashion and material culture to look at how we can better understand um, identities in the past. Um, a few years ago, I, during lockdown actually, I decided to make the jump to put some of my research interests onto social media, specifically TikTok, creating short videos um, of things that I found particularly interesting, specifically things that I thought challenged uh, preconceptions that we have about fashion in the past and people in the past. Um, And they began to do very well. Um, And I have a TikTok account that I run called The Royal Wardrobe. That's been very successful for the last few years now. And this is where sort of the confidence to jump into writing a book came from um, sort of having this continual feedback and looking at what, what interests people, what surprises people about the royals
2: and their clothes very cool to get that kind of feedback i'm sure um and makes a lot of sense reading the book going like yeah okay that is interesting <laughs> i'm not the only one who thinks so um so starting at the beginning of the period you examine um why do you start the book with the tudors
3: well i mean from a very basic perspective you begin to have more sources more readily available to you as a fashion historian from the tudor period onward um, Especially at the further back you go, the more you have to rely on visual sources um, to give you a sense of what people were wearing because we have less and less surviving items of clothing. So that is one of the reasons why a lot of people begin often the story of royal fashion from the Tudors. But also on a, a much wider basis, the Renaissance is generally considered the start of fashion not not quite in the modern sense but in a sense, in a in a way that's much closer to what we would Identifiers as, as the meaning of fashion. Um, flourishing trade networks and also an increased sense of self um, granted many people the opportunity to self fashion an identity through material commodities. So you wouldn't just um, define yourself through the groups and societies that you existed in, um, you could reinforce that with the clothes that you were wearing. And so material consumption became a very important means to display worldly connections and intelligence. So if you knew where in the world to get the best furs for your clothes or the best silks, um, that was a very um, strong visual way of informing people that you were very well connected. So this is a, a, a very important time for material consumption. And this, while the Renaissance period doesn't line up perfectly with the Tudor period, it's from a royal perspective the first time on the sort of English and British stage that we begin to see this. Emerging. Um, So, Henry VIII and Mary I, for example, were incredibly passionate about clothing from a personal perspective. Um, And we have many, many instances of them taking great pleasure in the clothes that they buy for themselves or are gifted. And Elizabeth I, at the end of the Tudor period, um, we have this incredible. sort of self-fashioning and and creation of a royal identity happening through clothes and she was very very clear with how she used her clothes to send messages and how she ingrained her clothes into the idea of being a monarch
2: that makes sense as a starting period and for a number of reasons then thank you for giving us that foundation um The book obviously moves chronologically for some kind of clear historical reasons that makes it make a lot of sense. Um, But I noticed a number of sort of common themes across the different monarchs, um, and interestingly, even across sort of different dynasties as well. So I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit kind of about those threads, um, even if the answers end up taking us away from a chronological order. Um, The first being in, in what you've just described to us, it's clear kind of why monarchs Cared the the extent to which they cared um, about their own clothing and kind of that more was available, so there was more to play with in terms of that messaging. But you also talk about in the book that monarchs don't just care about their own clothing; they really, well, some of them seem to really care about what everyone else around them was wearing. Why were some monarchs so really quite obsessed? Um, at least to my understanding of the details the specifics of what other people at court wore and to what extent did this kind of attempts at you know monitoring and policing what everyone else wore was that just a tudor thing how consistent was that over time <laughs>
3: Yes, well, it's, it's always been very important for the royals to assemble a cohesive identity that reflects their values, that reflects the values of the monarch or the head of the household, so that might mean the the consort as well, so that outsiders um, to the court circle um, sort of have this very clear image of, of who that monarch is. And that has taken... A, the way that they have controlled and created those group identities has changed throughout the history of the royal family. It has probably its most sort of concrete and well-defined roots during the Tudor period, and technically also just before the Tudor period in the form of sumptuary laws, um, which were Henry VIII was particularly interested in implementing. And these were laws that dictated what clothes and fabrics people could have access to based on their income, their title, and in some cases, even their professions. And this was a society wide thing, not just about people within the court. And this was mainly to prevent sort of as the social structure is beginning to change, as the rising merchant class is beginning to amass more money. It's sort of to prevent them from competing with the people who are supposed to be at the top of society. Um, but within the court itself, that was also to ensure that nobody was sort of upstaging the monarch and that they existed within this microcosm of society as, again, the top of the pile. And while sumptuary laws were um, deconstructed during the Stuart period, so they, in the context of my book, they're not around for very long. Um, the the monarchs continue, many monarchs continued to take an interest in what people were wearing when they were in the royal presence. Um, And that was, again, for a very similar reason, wanting to create a cohesive group identity. Um, So George III, for for example, took that very, very seriously. Um, Him and his wife, Queen Charlotte, they Implemented very very strict rules for attending court um, and really this was to make sure that people weren't slacking so whereas the Tudors were trying to keep people down and keep people in their place the Georgians wanted to make sure everyone was dressing as formally as physically possible um, as a way of sort of showing the importance of Of the court structure and the importance of being around the monarch in a period where monarchical power was beginning to be challenged um, throughout society um, and across the globe.
2: And obviously in those cases, having sumptuary laws, literally laws, um, people could get arrested for it and having a really specific uniform that if you, as you talk about, I think in the book, if you weren't wearing it properly, you could sort of say, actually, you can't come in today, right? It was it was quite heavily um, enforced. But you also talk about in the book, some monarchs that um, kind of still cared this much, but couldn't quite manifest um, their requirements on everyone around them. What sort of factors enabled kind of some monarchs to say, I want this and actually get it versus ones that maybe did want something but couldn't quite manage to make everyone else comply? Yeah, it it was a very difficult process to create
3: these rules, especially after sumptuary legislation disappeared you know that's, that's a lot harder even with sumptuary legislation it was very difficult to sort of pin it down and enforce um, outside of the court to enforce the kind of punishment that they um, that was being suggested for breaking sumptuary legislation but it really came down to the method or or how extreme the rules implemented were and also the time in which these rules were implemented. So Queen Charlotte, um, during her time as Queen Consort, there were multiple times in which she tried to enforce certain changes um, and rules in women's court dress in particular. And her first few attempts were unsuccessful. People just kind of complained and complained and complained and unanimously sort of didn't make the move to change. And part of that was probably because she was very new to British society. And what she was trying to implement was a more European uh, fashion uh, of court dress, uh, which would have been quite at odds with the British standard. But when she attempted again to change court fashion and to implement laws, first of all, she did so at a very very good time. She did so around the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, where uh, the aristocracy at large, not just the monarchy, was sort of having to contend with these ideas of, society is changing are we really at the top are we really as secure as we think we are And so there was a lot more of an interest in creating a cohesive, aristocratic group identity. So the idea of being told to wear a certain uniform, essentially, was a lot more attractive. And also the method that Charlotte used to create this uniform was rather than telling people to wear a completely new style of dress, which is what she had attempted to do at first, she sort of encouraged people to... Continue wearing what they were wearing. So hoop skirts, for example, even as they fell out of popularity in wider fashionable society at court, they continued to be required for many, many, many years. So she more she fossilized um, court fashion rather than completely changing it. So it was much more successful um, with that attempt.
2: That makes a lot of sense, right? It's harder to get people to kind of go, wait, you're new. What are you making us do? Rather than, actually, you get to keep doing what you're doing. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, We've obviously mentioned King George III and his impact already, but I'd love to stay on him for a moment because you have this fabulous um, sentence in the book that, quote, King George III is who we must thank for the shape of the modern monarchy, particularly in regard to their approach to clothing. What do you mean by this?
3: So George III, I think, is a very interesting figure when it comes to fashion history. He himself was not a fashionable gentleman. He was not at all interested in the intricacies of clothing like other members of his family were, notably his eldest son, um, the future George IV. He was very passionate about clothing. Um, But what George III... Was aware of was the power that clothing could have in assisting um, with the monarchy and with sending out this um, clear vision of, of what the monarchy represented Yes. Yeah, so for George, it was less about dazzling your subjects as, as fashion had been for the Tudor royals, for example. Um, and it was more about being a leader and showing um, that he he saw this as a very important job, that he saw his role as as being one of, of sort of nurturing the country and sort of... If you think about it from that perspective, what's, what's something you would want to wear if you want to position yourself as a leader? Well, possibly a uniform. And that's exactly how George treated his clothes, like a uniform and actually created um, some civil uniforms to wear himself during his day to day court life uh, in order to sort of compound that. And he expected others in his family and court to do the same, to treat the royal palace as not as a place of frivolity, but as a place of duty. And that is something that has carried on even through until the present day. There have been some monarchs that have definitely been more fashionably inclined, um, but there is still this sense of there's the royals when they're off duty and there's the royals when they're, you know, doing their work if we think about sort of the the coat dress that modern royal women often wear for important functions a coat dress that doesn't fit within sort of the the usual fashionable sphere in present day not many people would I think choose to wear a coat dress if they were going to work uh, but that's what the royal women do to sort of make it very clear when they are attending an important royal function and to make it clear that, no, this isn't for the sake of sort of our satisfaction. This is because we are performing a function and we are doing a job and we are carrying out a duty. So that's where this change comes from. And that's why I say that George III was this turning point um, because that's where this idea of royal fashion as uniform really comes from.
2: Mm, That makes quite a lot of sense and I think is going to be familiar to listeners um, thinking about modern royals going, oh, okay, that is what they think. Oh, interesting to know where that came from. Um, Similarly, in a kind of tell us the origin story sort of sense, um, one thing that is often common about uh, today's monarchs and honestly even presidents and you know from from other countries as well the idea of first ladies or their equivalents um having some sort of responsibility not just to sort of dress the part but to do so wearing clothing made from the country that they're representing um so wearing british textiles um having british dressmakers when and how did that sort of idea come about
3: well, historically, foreign brides, foreign royal brides would be expected to give up their foreign styles when they married into um, the royal family, whether that was English, Scottish, wherever, um, to show really a shift in political allegiance. Yeah, so it was less about patronage and more about sort of showing loyalty to the new country and the new royal family that you had married into. Um and the local textiles trades had always been very important to British royals. Um, the English wool trade, for example, was very important to Elizabeth I, and she tried to implement sumptuary legislation that would help to benefit um, the English wool trade. Um, but there was always the issue of hypocrisy as foreign manufacturing had always really been seen as far superior to British um the British textiles trade whether that was the raw materials like specific fabrics or the construction and style of these clothes Um, so we see lots of um royals throughout the early modern period with tailors that they have brought over usually from France usually from Paris so there is that um there is that, the the kind of idea is, uh, of Paris being one of the fashion capitals of the world that goes back a very, very long way. Um, but the first royal, really, to practice what they preached and to commit, really, to trying to change that narrative of, of British, the British textiles trade being... Um, being lesser than than some of the other um, textiles empires in the world was Queen Adelaide, who was the wife of William IV. So she was sort of around in the early 19th century. That's when her husband was reigning. And she sort of undertook this campaign within her own social circle to promote British textiles and made a very big show of trying to prove to people that British lace or British silks were superior to French or other foreign uh, manufactured goods and encouraged women to attend court specifically wearing dresses of british manufacture and she was the first royal really to be recognized for putting in that effort to uplift and uphold um the british textiles industry but it wasn't it wasn't like she brought this in and, and everybody kind of stuck to it from then on. Queen Victoria, for example, was very fond of French textiles and French clothes. And throughout her the early very early years of her reign, um, that was a point of contention. There were lots of articles, very angry articles, written by local tradespeople who were upset that they had lost this royal support. Um, and then... Once Victoria realised how um, important it could be to patronise British uh, textiles producers, she made that shift and she sort of put to one side her French fashions and committed herself to wearing British textiles. So that's... That's, it's in the 19th century that we have that modern idea of, of supporting British in, industries and, and upholding um, the British textiles industry in particular.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from start or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by
1: Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory...
2: Also around that time, um, or at least within that century, we also have um, the start of photography. And obviously the monarch gets access to that before everyday people do. To what extent did uh, photography, as opposed to paintings where you can do all sorts of things with um, clothing and how people appear, how did that change, if at all, how the monarchy approached fashion and clothing?
3: well victoria and albert jumped on photography as soon as it really became available to them and they identified it as a very valuable a potentially very valuable tool at dispersing their image uh, of the royal family the image they were trying to create of the royal family so they were very interested in how it could work but victoria herself had a very uncomfortable relationship with photography she knew that she didn't represent the beauty standards for the time um and so was very sensitive about having her photograph dispersed and that's because she was very used to to being able to have a certain degree of control over how she was depicted through portraiture and like you said Photography, it's, you know, what you see is what you get to an extent. Um, Images could be retouched. But it did have an impact in how the royal family viewed their clothing. Any time really that media has made a jump forward, visual media has made a jump forward, the royal family have had to undergo a massive shift in how they treat their clothing and how much they express through their clothing so from a very practical sense they began to pick clothes that they knew would work when photographed so court dress for example typically at the time would have been um very frothy and white dresses um, that are very covered in lace and tulle and very complex, but pale colours, pale fabrics, they don't show particularly well um, in photography from that period. And so we begin to see, especially with um, Alexandra of Denmark, who was the Princess of Wales and later Queen Consort, she really... um, stood at the forefront of creating this idea of you know sort of royal uh, photography fashion and she began to play with texture in her clothes she used strong sharp tailoring lines dark colors that would it was easier to see the detail in the clothes that way um and using very contrasting geometric patterns. So her clothes were created with the intention of being as visually pleasing, not necessarily to someone seeing her in person, but to someone seeing her image in a photograph. So there is this shift to trying to appeal to the person viewing the photograph, And the royals also become hyper-vigilant about sanitising the fashion that they wear. Um, Queen Victoria, as well as many, many other people at the time and throughout history, believed that clothes were the single most revealing element of a person's inner workings. And the royal family suddenly became very nervous about the fact that more and more people could see them and view them and observe their fashion and scrutinize their fashion through photography. Um, And so they wanted to kind of control and limit the number of um, personal identifiers that could be dispersed through their clothing. So in the Tudor period, it would be very common for people to include references to their political allegiances, their religious uh, allegiances um, in their clothing Um, But by this point, this had completely died out because they didn't want to, they knew they couldn't control anymore who saw those, those symbols and those representations.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Kind of something we've all had to think about of how does that show up in a photo and going, oh wait, Queen Victoria had that problem too. (laughs) Um, Speaking of Queen Victoria, she notoriously, especially from a fashion perspective, wore mourning clothes, black all sorts of black um, for decades which caused some political issues um, caused a whole bunch of things but you talk about in the book caused some complicated impacts on fashion particularly could you tell us a bit about this well in a very literal sense when victoria plunged not only herself,
3: but the court in general into mourning. Um, she shut down the court dressmaking trade, which was one of the biggest textiles or one of the most significant textiles industries in the country and because she wasn't hosting court functions anymore. Um, there was no need for people, for the aristocracy or the people who were partaking in the court bubble to go out and buy new dresses to wear to royal functions. Um, and so that caused a lot of tension in that this industry had now taken a massive hit. Um, but also we have this very interesting relationship and expectation of the royal family. Um, And this is an argument and a, a conversation point that is still, I think, very prevalent today, where we sort of have this opinion that we allow the royal family to occupy this very important position in society but because of that they must then give us something in return and typically that's sort of we expect to see them making sacrifices or we expect to see some kind of show or performance and often that manifests through sort of sartorial splendor in the traditional royal sense and and that was very true for the victorians and when victoria retreated into this life of of a widow where she felt very sorry for herself and didn't want to be seen in public, she offset that responsibility to her children, um, who were a bit younger, a bit more lively, and they were more fashionable. But after a while, um, people sort of lost interest in her children because they wanted the queen herself. This is a person who's supposed to be top dog and she's not really giving people what they expect to see from her. So Victoria had two periods, really, of, of mourning fashion. Victorian mourning fashion was split into different periods generally and usually that was to do with the amount of time that had passed between the death of the, of the loved one and, you know, whatever time it was then, um, and this would mean different colours were into brought back into um, the widow's wardrobe, for example. But for Victoria, she did it very differently. She had a period of traditional mourning where she followed the sort of sombre regulations that were... Um, Expected by society, and then when this pressure came back in, where people were suddenly very unhappy that she wasn't making this effort anymore, um, she continues to wear morning clothes, but it's like a royal version of morning clothes. Um, she incorporates um, gold or silver embroidery into more and more of her dresses, um, and incorporates this kind of re- a little bit of regal splendor back into her wardrobe. So she tries to find a middle ground between Victoria the Queen and Victoria, the woman who is mourning the death of a,
2: a much-loved husband. Hmm. That makes sense as a compromise, but an absolutely fascinating thing, um, particularly thinking about that relationship between the monarchy and the public. Um, this, is, of course, is something that doesn't go away with the death of Victoria. In fact, it gets even bigger uh, with the modern monarchy that we have now. Um, I was interested in your discussion about Elizabeth II how given that by the end of her life we often think of her style and fashion as being exactly on point you know very thought through really impactful and yet you talk about in the early part of her reign and her first decade as queen that you consider it to be a quote continual case of trial and error in a quest to establish an independent dress sense. Can you take us through this period that I think most of us probably don't remember?
3: Yes so Queen Elizabeth, she was never particularly interested in fashion from a personal perspective. Um, for her, it was always very much just, I'm going to wear what I'm going to wear. And if if I can go out and I can get muddy in it, then that's that's even better. Um, you know, She's very, very down to earth um, in that sense. It was Princess Margaret. I'm sure no one will be surprised to hear it was Princess Margaret, who was the one who was genuinely interested in fashion and in the the intricacies of clothing but of course being the sort of heir to the throne and, and then becoming queen Elizabeth did know that she needed to begin to take her clothing seriously because you know people were going to be looking at her and so she inherited really the um the tailors the dressmakers and the designers that were used by her mother um the the queen mother as we know her um so there's this very awkward period at the start of elizabeth's reign where she's sort of following the rubric of royal fashion and royal women's fashion that was set out for her mother which was kind of this Frothy, fairy queen style uh, model um, with lots of pale white fabrics, uh, romantic colours, everything very pale, pastel and um, ultra feminine. But that was created um, to serve the sort of 1930s version of the monarchy, this pre-war version of the monarchy um, in a time where people were wearing clothes that were very androgynous and very simple so there was an understanding that something needed to change, but people weren't quite sure how that needed to change because, so you think this is the post-war period. So you needed to—they needed to find something for Elizabeth that was one half sort of inspirational figure, beautiful, a fairy-like monarch, but also. In a way that's palatable to post-war Britain, that isn't seen as excessive and isn't seen as tone deaf. So that's where the trial and error comes from. It's how far do you go on either end of that spectrum? And there were a few cases where uh, Norman Hartnell. Um, one of the sort of premier royal designers from that time, where he attempts simplicity to see how that, that would go down. Um, and it, it doesn't have the desired effect because so many people end up copying what the Queen is wearing and making their own versions of her simple dresses because they're easier to replicate. And Norman Hartnell didn't want that. He believed through and through that the royal family should be Unattainable and they should represent this sort of fairy tale life um, that we look at and we love but we don't get to experience. Um, and so he shifted his focus more towards very intricately embroidered or detailed dresses and outfits to, to create this sense of unattainability for the average person. So that's the kind of dichotomy that Elizabeth II had to deal with early in her reign, um, simplicity versus complexity, and where that balance fell. And she also had to... It was very clear that she was more interested in wearing richer and brighter colours. When she first began to make clothing purchases for herself and not just sort of relying on her mother, her interests were straight from the get-go, this sort of rainbow queen that we have this image in our heads of um, from more recent years, whereas the royal standard at the time was still those girlish, pale, pastel colours. So it's sort of like Elizabeth as an individual trying to figure out who she is, whilst also working within the frameworks of the concept of like the female royal that already existed and having to work against that existing structure.
2: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And especially given what we remember from the end is useful to go back and look at the beginning. Um, And in some ways you, I mean, very helpfully bring the book all the way up to the present. And in some ways, King Charles almost has the opposite problem we we actually know rather a lot about sort of his style and what who he is um and maybe have already formed opinions about it before he became the monarch um and i admit i wasn't surprised to see him included in the book it makes sense the book just came out why not include the most recent monarch i was a little bit surprised um with your sort of opening that there are lessons that fashionable people can learn from Charles III, um, which I don't think is necessarily what is discussed in the popular press, uh, but that's why we have books that can go into more detail. So can you tell us a bit about the lessons you think can be learnt from the current monarch in terms of fashion and style? <laughs>
3: Well, King Charles has always been very, very interested in the environment and in sustainability, which is obviously a massive topic at the moment, but hasn't always been throughout his life and throughout his time of taking an interest in those issues. Um, And a lot of this, a lot of that interest manifests in the clothes that he wears, and not just specifically the clothes that he wears, but more or less his attitude to clothing in general. And I wanted to kind of frame his choices and his um, approach to clothes as, you know, like I said, something that you can learn lessons from. I also, I want to stress that I don't think we should all be dressing like King Charles III, because I understand that's not sustainable. He is the king, he is um, getting his clothes from some of the most prestigious and expensive tailors available to him. But the ideology that kind of underpins his rationale when it comes to clothes, that is something I think we can learn lessons from. Um, We have moved into an increasingly uh, more consumer society where we sort of we don't think about where our clothes are coming from and then we often don't think about where they go once we're done with them, we, we sort of think about them passing through our hands and disappearing off and we never have to worry and sort of just vanishing from existence. Um, and the same is true for other industries as well. A lot of people don't think about where their food comes from, for example, how it gets onto the table in front of them, and then they don't think about where that waste is going to go. And that's a really big issue just generally in the um sustainability community um, is trying to think more about um, the existence of a circular economy and the the life of our material goods and I think it, it felt very right to finish on 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 the note of King Charles and his approach to fashion because a lot of what he espouses he's really taken inspiration from how people in the past have um, treated their clothes Um, and i think that again there are a lot of lessons we can learn from people in the past how people throughout history have interacted with their clothes so this idea of thinking very mindfully about the clothes that you're buying looking for quality pieces that you know are going to last you a very, very long time, developing a personal sense of style that maybe doesn't reflect the sort of minute passings of fashion that are happening at any given moment, but a style that really reflects who you are as an individual so that you know in 10, 20 years' time you you might still be wearing those clothes because they still reflect a part of who you are ultimately with the aim of reducing the amount of materials that we're consuming and disposing of and also um, about looking for ways to extend the life of our of our garments mending rather than throwing things away um, most people will know how to sort of sew a button or mend a little hole in a jumper or something but things like shoes how can we make our shoes last a lot longer Um, and King Charles has set up a lot of very interesting initiatives in his time in order to um, improve the standard of sustainability in the textiles industry in Britain Um, and that has had an influence in the sustainability industries across the world which is very very interesting and one of his very uh, sort of a one thing that he believes in very strongly is that education and the investing time in educating people about um, sustainability and about where their items are coming from and how they can make their clothes last longer and giving people the opportunity to learn skills that will make them, that will sort of reinvigorate these industries of um, sustainable clothing is through education. So he's set up lots of education initiatives um, that focus on a fashion and sustainable fashion and sustainable sustainable material culture which is very very interesting um so that's where i think we can learn our lessons from king charles is in his approach and ethos to filling your wardrobe sustainably rather than i'm I'm definitely not saying everyone should pop out to Eden ravenscroft to go and get all their shirts or whatnot but yes that's that's where i think we can learn our
2: lessons fair enough um This book obviously covers um, a lot of time, a lot of monarchs, a lot of different elements of fashion. And I found reading it sort of bits and pieces here, it was, ooh, that's interesting, I didn't know that. Or, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, Obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, You came to this book having already done a lot of uh, exploration and discussion about monarchical fashion, but was there any sort of maybe one little story or a detail or something that particularly surprised you, whether or not it made it into the book that you'd like to share with us before we finish?
3: Well, the things that really interest me in fashion history, the things I'm always on the hunt for, and also just generally, are stories and tidbits that challenge our understanding of the past and one of the most common misconceptions about people of the past but also at the same time the clothes that they wore is that we are on this trudge from often people will refer to it as a downhill slope from a perfect conservative version of the past to a sort of morally degenerate present which is a very problematic way of viewing the past and a very problematic way of viewing fashion history, because it's not the case. Um, Humans have always looked for interesting ways to express themselves and to go against the grain. And to we've always had subcultures. And we've always had people doing crazy and provocative things. So that's what I like looking for. And I always get very excited when I find examples of that. Um, And one of the things that I I thought was absolutely fascinating, um, which I already knew a little bit about, but I really sort of went down a rabbit hole when I was researching the book. Anne of Denmark, who was the wife of uh, King James I and Sixth, So in the early 17th century, um, they came down to England from Scotland, and sort of the reigning over both countries. Um, But she was very well known for displaying her entire chest. Um, She had necklines that, according to one um, eyewitness, exposed her chest bare down to the pit of her stomach. And if you go to Westminster Abbey and you see her funeral effigy, you can see where they've painted the outline of her dress. And it is extremely low and it dips below her nipples. Um, It's very much not what we would expect. Um, It it doesn't fit that kind of traditional conservative model of thinking about the past. Um, And it was... Many historians believe it was because she was very proud of her chest, um, but also because she enjoyed court masks and theatre and performance, and that sort of risque exposing fashion was what was popular in uh, court mask performances. So she was having fun and being a little bit different and a little bit scandalous with her clothing. And that's something I don't know. It felt very, it felt very modern. It felt very refreshing, but it also felt sort of nothing like you would imagine the, the modern royals doing. So it was very interesting to to discover and to get involved and look at those kind of very surprising moments in royal fashion history.
2: And what a great way to um, come to the end of the discussion about the book, kind of with such a clear example of what listeners uh, might want to read about, should they have listened to this go, oh, I want to know more. Um, there's all sorts of stories in the book. So thank you for sharing one of them with us. Um, but before I let you go, I'd love to ask if there's anything that you might be working on now that this book is available for people, um, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on the subject of royal fashion that you'd like to preview for us. <laughs>
3: Yes, so I am currently researching... I'm researching a group of prostitutes in the 19th century, so it's very, very different. Maybe I've had a little bit of royal fatigue, I think might be uh, the reason why I've taken a little shift, Um, but I'm looking at this group of high-class prostitutes in the 19th century who became fashion icons of their time, and I'm trying to piece together um, the certain elements of fashion that they introduced or popularised and how how they became fashionable celebrities so it's sort of linking into that um, idea
2: of, of looking at a, a new and slightly scandalous version of fashion history well that would be very exciting best of luck with that project Thank um, you. but of course listeners can read the book we've been discussing while you're working on it titled <laughs> the royal royal wardrobe peek into the wardrobes of history's most fashionable royals um, just published so do go ahead and get your hands on it. Rosie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.